Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, February the 9th, 2023. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did an interesting show about American behavior in the Second World War with the foreign policy historian, Zachary Shaw. Um, he has a new book out. This is not who we are. America's struggle between vengeance and virtue. Uh, Shaw seems to suggest, particularly in the Second World War, that America ricocheted between goodness and evil in its behavior, the nuclear bomb and various other initiatives in terms of rebuilding Europe. This rather Manichaean, uh, polarizing or polarized uh, reading of American foreign policy has come out in other shows as well. We did a show with Brookings Institute, Charles Koopchan about American exceptionalism and American isolationism. Charles has been on the show several times. He has an interesting book out, Isolationism, A History of American Efforts to shield itself from the world. And we also did an interesting show last year with the historian Michael Kimmage on American um, conceptions of itself in terms of its foreign policy. He has a book out, The Abandonment of the West. He suggests that America should think of itself as a Western power in terms of not just geography, but Western civilization. One man, a historian, uh, of American foreign policy, who's done a lot of thinking in this area, is my guest today, Robert Kagan. He's one of uh, America's best-known, most authoritative and, and, and respective thinkers on foreign policy. Um, and he has a trilogy out uh, uh, of books, a trilogy of books about American behavior um, in its history when it comes to foreign policy. It's called the Dangerous Nation Trilogy. Um, the first one was called Dangerous Nation. It dealt with American foreign policy uh, between its foundation and the beginning of the 20th century. And he has a new book out, The Ghost at the Feast. It's the second volume in the trilogy, America and the Collapse of World Order, 1900 to 1941. I'm thrilled that uh, Robert Kagan, uh, I'm going to call him Bob, is joining us. Uh, Bob, why three volumes? Can you do it all in one? <laughs> that was the original plan. I wanted to try to do it all in one, but I felt like uh, a one-volume history of American foreign policy is really just, uh, you know, a summary of themes and thoughts, or it's just one thing after another. And I really wanted to get into into some depth. And if you if you read the book, you'll see that it covers in some depth American domestic politics, American foreign policymaking, the politics uh, of other countries uh, at the time. And so in order to sort of get all that in there, um, I've, needed, I've needed at least three volumes and I may need four, but I just don't know I'm going to live long enough to write four. That's my only hesitation. Well, I hope you'll live long enough, certainly uh, for the third, <laughs> if not the fourth. Um, this period, 19, uh, uh, sorry, this period, uh, 1900 to 1941, in your reading and in the book, it's formative, isn't it, Bob? It's when America, shall we say, grew up, became a world power, or learned the responsibilities of, 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 of being a world power. In broad terms, I mean, I want this conversation to be about the ghost in the machine, but what were the 
the conclusions of, of Dangerous Nation. What, what was American foreign policy and American conception of the world all about in the first 200 years of its history? <laughs> well, that's a that's a long question uh, requiring a long answer, but I'll try to I'll try to keep it relatively brief. A long, I mean, short answer, or a short, long one. Okay, well, good. So, I, you know, uh, one of the one of the key themes of of, of Dangerous Nation, the first volume, is, is that contrary to I think the the general a uh, very common belief, the United States is not an isolationist nation, uh, in the sense that uh, if you look at even before the United States uh, came into being uh, after the revolution of 1776, even as a colonial uh, power was expanding massively in, on the continent of North America, um, you know, Americans like to treat that as sort of empty territory. Uh, so we were just expanding territorially. But of course, in the process, they were also, you know, wiping out uh, Indian tribes, stealing land from others. Uh, and not to mention not just Native Americans, but also Spaniards and French and British. So uh, it's important to remember that the United States was a very expansionist power uh, from its earliest days. You, you use the word expansionist, others might use the C word uh, colonialist. Was there an equivalent between the American acquisition of Western lands and European colonization of, of Africa or other it parts was of the world? Not. It, there was one important distinction, and it, it doesn't necessarily reflect well on, on America's history either, but the, the important distinction is that colonial efforts are usually, you, you, they move in and they take over a territory and, they, and the, the people on that territory become their subjects. But of course, Americans didn't want the people on the land, they just wanted the land. And so um, <laughs> there were some cases where they were ruling foreign populations, for instance, after uh, the, uh, the Louisiana Purchase, there were French citizens who'd been basically abandoned by uh, Napoleon uh, and who were not necessarily interested in becoming American citizens, but they were uh, taken into the United States. And, uh, and that was, I think, the closest thing. Uh, so they sort of Napoleon. conveniently ignored the fact that there were people there. In that sense, it reminds me a little bit of, of, of Zionism. And, and, and the uh, Jewish settlers or Jewish nationalists in the Middle East who conveniently forgot about the fact that there were already people there in the first place. Are there similarities? Well, I mean, the, the biggest difference, of course, is that the international community created the state of Israel led by the United States, whereas nobody created the state of the United States. We, the Americans just went out and did it. Um, uh, and so I, I suppose that's, that's one difference. Uh, and uh, yeah. But sure, there's there's obviously a similarity. By the way, I mean, this is the story of humanity, right? I mean, the nations, uh, we're not, we were not born, the world was not born with these borders. Um, everything we see is a consequence of conquest at some point back in the... It, it, back yeah, but whenever. some people would be listening to this and saying, there goes Kagan again, that neocon, Hobbesian... Um, you 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 you'd suggest that that is some sort of universal truism. Not everyone would agree. What that that land has been conquered throughout human history. <laughs> well, the, the history of the world is one of power and violence. Um, uh, is it not? Know, there are alternative narratives. I'm not saying they're necessarily right. <laughs> okay. I don't think it makes uh, me a neocon, whatever that is. I'm not. I'm never quite sure what people mean by that. Yeah, phrase. I don't like the term either, and I. I I'm, I'm I think, that it, I think it's more like 
a realistic assessment of what the nature of humanity is. Um, and I think, if, you know, I may have a, a, a sort of more, I, I don't know if darker is the right word, but I would say uh, I, I don't have a sort of belief that human beings are naturally good to each other. Um, that I don't think- Are you comfortable with the term uh, realist? Uh, we were talking before the show went live. I was a grad student at uh, UC Berkeley in the 1980s, got taught by probably America's preeminent realist uh, foreign policy thinker, Ken Wald. So are you in that school? Is that a, a term you're comfortable with? I mean, I, you know, it, the, those who call themselves realists would not want to call me a realist be, because realism comes with a whole package of beliefs about the, what people call realism comes with a package of beliefs. And, and where I disagree most strongly with people who generally call themselves realists is that I think belief and ideology play a critical role in the behavior of nations, whereas they mostly focus on power. For me, the, 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 big, the big what moves history is the interrelationship of power and ideas. So I suppose if you believe that power is a major driver of international and indeed human relations, then I suppose in some respects you could be called a realist. But I, I you know, these all these terms are, I, I think they create more difficulty than they solve. Honestly. But they're certainly good for me as the host of a chat show. They're good. controversial. Well, that's important. Uh, that's uh, important. Bob, one of the things about 19th century or 18th, 19th century America, which seems unusual in terms of its relations with the outside world, is it saw itself very much as the world in itself. And of course, most traditional societies do, but it wasn't a traditional society. Is that a fair observation? I don't know that Americans thought that they were a world unto themselves. Uh, you know, there is the, the myth of, of the shining city on the hill and separation, um, which, which really talks about the early Puritans, but doesn't really talk about uh, I think America as a whole, Americans always realized that they were part of an international community, that they were uh, obviously descended in the, certainly in the early years from, from Europeans and, and had, uh, you know, many of their institutions had, you know, European foundations. So I don't think Americans thought of themselves as being, uh, you know, somehow separate from everything else. They did think they were better than everyone else. And that had to do with the unique uh, universalist ideology that Americans adopted at the time of the revolution, which, which they felt was a superior, they believed that they were, uh, you know, at the forefront of human development. And, and also, by the way, had anticip anticipated being the greatest power in the world eventually, even when they were a very weak and tiny uh, people uh, in, the, in the early, you know, in the late 18th century. So let's get to the heart of this conversation, the, the ghost at the, at the feast, America and the Collapse of the World Order, 1900 to 1941, your new book. What changed, Bob? Why, why did America become the ghost um, at the feast in contrast with just simply being a dangerous nation? Well, what I mean, the biggest thing that changed was not just that the United States changed, although the United States, obviously, by the end of the 19th century, was a was a very rich country and growing richer. It was becoming the richest and most dynamic economy in the world, with the potential to be the strongest power on the war in the world. But Americans at the turn of the century were not interested in being a world power, particularly, and didn't think they needed to be. They were the beneficiaries 
uh, of a of a roughly liberal world order that was maintained largely by the British uh, Navy uh, and by the accident at the time of a relatively stable balance of power in Europe, which by 1900 was already collapsing. And so what happened was the British uh, a, a British sort of the British world order uh, was was collapsing because Britain really wasn't uh, powerful enough to maintain a truly global order with other powers rising like Germany in Europe and Japan uh, in Asia. Uh, and the sort of the sort of symbol of the breakdown of this world order was World War One. And at that point, it became very clear uh, to, Amer to some Americans and certainly to many uh, in Europe uh, that this the world had really now become a world in which America was the dominant power. And the real question that Americans faced, therefore, after World War I was whether they wanted to play that role uh, in the world, to be a dominant power, to be the power on which a global peace rested or even, or even just a European peace. And for a variety of reasons, Americans uh, rejected that role at, by rejecting the League of Nations and the Versailles Treaty that uh, Woodrow Wilson came home with in 1919, uh, and then and then found out what the consequences of that were. Uh, well, is it, would it be fair to say, Bob, that there were there were two ways of thinking about America in the world? We did a show with the historian Neil Lanktot on American entrance into World War One. It's called The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and their clash over America's future, leaving Jane Adams out of it. She's more marginal. But TR and, and, and Wilson had very different visions of America in the world. Is that fair? I don't think so, actually. Um, you know, they as presidents, they, they lived in two very different worlds. Roosevelt really lived in a world that was still dominated by Europe, uh, he was president at a time when Americans had had uh, engaged in the conflict in, in Cuba uh, in the Spanish-American War and had uh, taken the Philippines largely by accident, as, as, it, as it happens. Uh, but nevertheless, they were not interested in further activity uh, in the world, really, at that time. And in addition to which, as I say, Roosevelt was very comfortable in what he regarded as a British-led world. Um, by the time of Wilson, the world is obviously that world has collapsed. And the real question then is what role is the United States going to play? And on that question, uh, Roosevelt and Wilson were roughly had roughly similar views. I think people either don't remember or never learned uh, in their history books that really the first person to talk in great detail about the idea of a League of Nations was actually Theodore Roosevelt. He wrote several essays about it, uh, about the idea in, uh, in 1914 after the war broke out. Wilson himself was a latecomer to the League, but they both, where they agreed was, they both believed that the time had come when the United States did have to play a, a major role in the world. In, in the case of Roosevelt's presidency, he was fairly cautious, but that was his over, because he thought the American people weren't there but that was his approach. So I think that the two men could not have been more different in terms of their personality, in terms of their style of leadership, et cetera. But when it came to thinking about how the United States fit into the world, I think their views were fairly similar. There's something tragic, almost Shakespeareanly tragic about Wilson. Um, leaving aside the, the personal elements, his, his flaws and, and, and his own story, is... 
are the contradictions in in American approach to the world are they somehow captured in all the morality and hypocrisy and absurdity and also intellectual strength of Woodrow Wilson? I don't know. I I feel like Wilson gets a bad rap actually, <laughs> um, as 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 indicated by the words you just used to describe him. I mean, he he was obviously you know a, a very arrogant man. He he didn't really. Uh, wasn't very interested in people who disagreed with him and all of that. Uh, but he was attempting to address a very real problem, and I think he addressed it in a very practical way. And what was the problem? The problem was in when he arrived in Paris, uh, you know, how to get Germany back on its feet without threatening another conflict, without France feeling insecure uh, with uh, the rising power once again of Germany. And of course, we know how that was solved after World War II, uh, but after World War One, we didn't. There wasn't as as we didn't have hadn't had the experience which led to the sort of dramatic decisions. Well, was he diplomatically made. flawed? I mean, the traditional narrative is that Clemenceau and Lloyd George right. ran, ran rings around him. Yeah, that's. A, I don't know. You know, that is. I if you read my book, you'll you'll come up with a different interpretation. I think that the person who who gave in the most at at Paris was Clemenceau. Uh, the French wanted very simply that Germany should be broken up into its component pieces, basically to recreate the pre-Bismarckian Germany. They wanted, in, above all, to separate the Rhineland from the rest of Germany, either to make it independent and autonomous, uh, but under French control, or in fact, to make it a French province. And so that was what uh, Clem, that's what the French desperately felt that they needed. They never got that. Um, and from their point of view, the consequence was they had to fight another war against Germany, um, you know, starting in 1940. So um, I, I think the real loser at the at the Paris peace talks was was Clemenceau. Uh, I think Wilson got most of what he wanted. And the real problem that he had was selling the league back home. Uh, well, that's and, uh, that's that that is a it's like you know that's a pretty big problem. I mean, if you're president and you need to sell it and get it passed by Congress, uh, right. that's a serious flaw, isn't it, Bob? Well, I don't know if it's a flaw. I mean, you know, the question is, uh, you know, when was it inconceivable that uh, that uh, the, the treaty and the league could have been passed by Congress? And the answer is clearly no. Uh, when Wilson came back from Paris with the league and the treaty in hand, uh, everyone believed, including Henry Cabot Lodge, whose job it was to defeat the treaty, uh, he believed, uh, as did most people, that the majority of Americans were generally in favor uh, of the League and the, and the treaty. Uh, and it, one of the truly miraculous legislative accomplishments uh, of our time was Lodge uh, being able to turn that sentiment around over the course of about six months of debating the treaty. Um, Lodge had tremendous advantages, i.e. that he controlled the Congress. Uh, you know, he was both majority leader and Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman. Uh, he was able to use the Senate's capacities. And let's not forget that the, the founders set up a system that made it very difficult to pass treaties. And whenever you had an opposition party in charge in Congress, the treaties generally lost, even anodyne, non-controversial treaties. And so this was obviously going to be a difficult... Well, was America itself ready at this point to become 
a world pal. We did a show with Adam Hothschild, his new book, American Midnight, The Great War of Ireland, Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, talks about the changes in America during the war. How much did the changes during the war affect, do you think, America's role in the world or its perception of itself in the world? Well, it, it, it's a it's a complicated story because on the one hand, of course, American forces were very successful. Uh, America did turn the tide in the war, even though the French did most of the, the British did most of the dying. Uh, but it was really the arrival of the United States that convinced the Germans to surrender. And then, and Americans, by the way, went into the war with great enthusiasm, um, and they were enthusiastic about about the ultimate victory. Uh, but then, you know. After the victory, there was a lot of disillusionment. Some of it was legitimate, and some of it was probably based on foolish expectations about what the world could possibly look like. Um, there were also obviously economic factors that affected this because you know the United States enjoyed an incredible economic boom during the war. And of course, when the war ended and the foreign uh, purchases uh, dropped, then the United States dipped into recession. That put everybody into a bad mood. Um, and there was a general aversion to things foreign in the 1920s. But I'm not convinced that things could not have gone the other way as well if, if, if the political situation had been different. And we really should not underestimate, and I don't think anybody who's living in our world, today's world, should have a hard time understanding how politics sometimes dominate questions which seem like they're big issues about how the United States should behave in the world, but it, the ultimate decision is really based on partisan politics. And that was the case in the, in the case of the defeat of the league. Let's talk about the 20s. Of course, uh, Wilson was replaced by Harding, who died quickly in office, and who was in turn replaced by Calvin Coolidge. I actually did a show with Amity Schles, the biographer of a magnificent book, I think, about Coolidge. And um, there's a quote from Coolidge uh, in the book in, from 1923, um, he said, I, I want things as they used to be before. He was a nostalgist, perhaps for the pre-war age. To what extent was Coolidge and, of course, Harding and even Hoover, to what extent did they not really confront America's new role in the world? When I read uh, Schley's biography of, uh, of, of, of Coolidge, for example, there's almost no mention of foreign policy. There's some stuff about Lodge, and there was clear antipathy between the two men, but Mussolini never comes up. Nothing comes up about the changing politics in Europe. What happened in the 20s, Bob? Yeah, I mean, I think, that's a, I think that was a decision by the author. I, there's certainly no shortage of foreign policy happening in Coolidge's uh, time in office. And you know, uh, there were, including uh, the the crisis that erupts in Europe when France invades Germany in 1923, some, the Ruhr intervention, I think, which many people don't remember, which led ultimately the United States to uh, sort of, uh, from sort of by putting uh, bankers in charge, but nevertheless led to something that was called the Dawes Plan, uh, which uh, tried to stabilize the European economic situation with large loans from American private and banks. Was secretary, was he secretary of state? He certainly was in the, or was it him or his brother was in the Coolidge administration? I yeah, Dawes was ultimately vice, a vice president um, yeah. as a result of the Dawes plan. He was a big businessman. He was a corporate head. And uh, 
um, and then became obviously a politician. Uh, you know, he was he was lionized for the Dawes plan, actually, because it was very popular back in the United States. So the world order that you talk about collapsing between 1900 and 1941, when, in your view, does it begin to collapse? Did it collapse after Versailles? Did it collapse after Wilson wasn't able to get the stuff through Congress? Or did it collapse with the rise of Mussolini and Hitler? And Stalin, of course. Yeah, I, you know, my take on that is that the critical decade was the 1920s, uh, because by the time you get to the 1930s, most of the most of the sort of pieces are in place for the disaster. You have Hitler taking power in 1933. Obviously, not only do you have Mussolini in power, but he's becoming more aggressive in that period. Uh, you have the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931. Uh, so by the 1930s, I think things have already gotten out of hand. So the, the argument that I make in the book is that the peace was really lost in the 1920s. Now, the, the, the paradox of that, of course, is that if you were living in the 1920s, you know, you would have to extremely careful attention to realize the perils that existed out there. And there were American diplomats in Europe, uh, the American ambassador to Germany, the American ambassador to France, a warning that things were sliding out of control and that the United States needed to play a bigger role. But that, of course, was rejected. And you'd asked about Coolidge and Harding and, and Hoover. Um, it almost didn't matter what they personally thought about foreign policy. Hoover, for instance, was a true internationalist. Um, when he when he first came on the scene, he was right, he made his name in Belgium, didn't he? That's right. And with, you know, with the food distribution, which he also engaged in with Russia, he was a he, he was a true internationalist. But by the time he became president, that was not acceptable in the Republican Party. And so all these presidents basically deferred to the I, I'll use the term as shorthand, the isolationists in the Republican Party who had basically taken control of the party's foreign policy in the course of the League of Nations debate. And I'm talking specifically about people like William Bora and Hiram Johnson, uh, who were sort of the leaders of the effort, not only to keep the Americans out of the League, but to keep Americans out of Europe in general. Uh, you know, it, when American diplomats traveled to Europe in the 1920s, they had to travel not as, a, as public officials. Um, they were basically under a no no talk to Europeans order. Uh, they couldn't go to conferences except as observers. And when they went, they weren't going as official representatives, et cetera. The, 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 the congressional control uh, of American foreign policy and what America could do in Europe was, was almost total at this point. And that's in a way, maybe that's why there's not much talk about Coolidge's foreign policy because he really wasn't very much in control of his foreign policy. Well, why were these people so blinkered, Bob? Was it a, a nativism, an ignorance, a parochialism or simply laziness? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've been to uh, Idaho, which is the home of William <laughs> Bora. And if you, I don't say this, uh, I'm not trying to be amusing even. Uh, if you stand in Idaho uh, surrounded by mountains, it's hard to understand why you should possibly care what is happening in Europe from there, you know, 5,000 miles away. Um, and so 
there's nothing more normal for than for Americans to believe that they are safe on this virtual island. They are powerful and safe and secure, and they don't have to worry about what's going on in the rest of the world. And that basic feeling is is with us today. It's always in tension with other attributes of the American character, uh, including its ideological disposition, including its great power, uh, which lead America out into the world. But at the same time, there's always this sense that it's completely unnecessary and anything that we do out there is only likely to get us into trouble. Uh, yeah, one man who, who didn't go to Idaho, I, I'm, well, he may have gone, but he certainly didn't grow up in Idaho, was FDR. We did a show on him, or we've done a number of shows, one with the historian Jonathan Darman becoming FDR, the personal crisis that made a president. How does FDR fit into the narrative? Is he the central character at the ghost at the feast, Bob? I mean, I suppose in a way, ultimately he is. Um, you know, he was uh, a, a real diehard internationalist. He was Woodrow Wilson's assistant secretary of the Navy. Uh, he was the vice presidential candidate in 1920 and ran very much on a platform of supporting the league. And he remained basically faithful to those international positions through the 20s. But when it came time for him to run for the presidency himself, um, you know, he had to change his views. He actually had to have a kind of come to Jesus meeting with William Randolph Hearst, who was one of the, uh, who was the, the press baron, who was a kingmaker in the Democratic Party and an isolationist. And he had to sort of basically swear to William Randolph Hearst that he would be, that he would oppose the league as president. And, and his first term, uh, beginning, you know, in 1933, uh, his first term, he, he was as much of an isolationist as his predecessor. Um, he pursued very much the policies of the Hoover administration. And it wasn't until his second term that I think you could say the real Roosevelt began to emerge. The real Roosevelt. Um, you, all this, of course, like any good history, is, is, is also quite contemporary. Uh, Thomas uh, Friedman just wrote a piece about warning us that year two of, of today's war in Ukraine, which is kind of in some ways like the Second World War, uh, is going to get scary. And, and he, he quotes you quoting uh, Franklin Roosevelt's 1939 State of the Union address. How can FDR and particularly his 1939 State of the Union, how can he help us today as we make we Americans make sense of the current uh, international situation, particularly in the Ukraine? Well, one of the, you know, one of the themes of this, of my book, and I think it's, it, it, it may be contrary to, uh, I think, most people's understanding uh, of how the United States got into the Second World War. One of the themes is that Americans began to turn in favor of greater involvement in Europe even before there was any real threat to American security. And the reason I quote that FDR speech, uh, State of the Union address in 1939 is that he makes it clear that while it may be the case that American security could be threatened ultimately, even before that, Americans should feel some sense uh, that they should be defending their principles uh, when they're threatened abroad. And I think one of the interesting things to me is that if you look at Ukraine today, if you had asked anyone on February 22nd whether the United States had a vital interest in Ukraine, uh, I think most people would have said no. And yet, once the Russian, once Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, 
Americans actually felt uh, a, a great majority of Americans felt that they're really we should really do something to help Ukraine. And I think that the impulse there is similar to the impulse that that Roosevelt was tapping into uh, in the late 30s, which is this sense that when there are aggressive militarist authoritarian uh, powers uh, that are trying to expand at the expense of their democratic uh, liberal-leaning neighbors, that the United States really has to do something about it. Um, and that was, in some respect, the lesson of the 1930s, which I think Americans still, even though Americans, obviously, many of them don't have any memory of that, but there is still inside, I think, the American character, this belief that uh, Americans should do something in situations like this. Uh, Bob, in, in, in the Friedman piece, at least, um, he quotes you comparing Putin with Stalin. You're not suggesting that Putin is Stalin, but you are suggesting there are comparisons. How, how would you um, compare Putin and Stalin? Well, first of all, Putin reveres Stalin and, and is uh, in some respects trying to put himself in a place where he uh, is, is in a kind of Stalin-like role. Um, he himself is drawing comparisons in this war with Ukraine to the Battle of Stalingrad, for instance, and World War II and the fight against Nazis, and his current effort to militarize Russian society in order to be able to fight this war is very reminiscent of Stalin's effort to militarize uh, Soviet society uh, in order to be able to deal with the challenges that he faced at the time. Now, you know, Stalin killed, you know, tens of millions through uh, famine and other means, and Putin has not done that. But I don't know, as I watch Putin operate on the battlefield in Ukraine, I, I don't know whether there is much that he wouldn't do if it was necessary, if he regarded it as necessary to his goals. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, think, I think the comparison with Putin and Stalin is one that Putin himself likes and that we should not be afraid of making. I wonder that in terms of historical comparisons are always easy to make. Uh, we mentioned... Um... Coolidge, uh, who famously said, I want things as they used to be before. I wonder if there's a, a Coolidge-like quality to Joe Biden. He just made a State of the Union address in which he didn't talk a great deal about foreign policy. Are you disappointed with Biden's response on, on, on Ukraine? There, there's not a lot of FDR about in Biden, is there? Well, I don't know. You know, it, it, it I think he gave the State of the Union address that he that he wanted to give for his own political purposes. And after all, a State of the Union address is ultimately a political activity, um, at least the way it's conducted now. I think he said what he needed to say about Ukraine. I, I, I wasn't disappointed in what he had to say. I would like him, and I don't think I'm the only one, to give a, a separate speech where he really does get into the question of what is the American role in the world? Because in a way, we have gotten deep into this Ukraine issue, I think, without having that discussion. You know, Franklin Roosevelt uh, spoke of, he invented, I think, the term the great debate, uh, which, he, which he used to characterize the debate between his side and sort of the America first and Republican side uh, in the 1940-41 period. Um, I, I think it, it would be good for Americans to have a very uh, a, a serious discussion about what role they want to play because we wind up backing into things and then wonder how we got there. Do um, Americans good, Bob, at having serious discussions on foreign policy? When was the last serious discussion? <laughs> well, you know, 
yes, I, I think that there are. Give me an example in the last well, 50 years. In the last 50 years? I mean, I'll, I'll go, I can go back to the 1940s for the great debate. And well, then that's obviously more than there 50 was a, years ago, since, since the Second a, World War. There was a lot of uh, discussion about foreign policy in the immediate aftermath of World War II, obviously. I think there was a lot of, uh, unfortunately, somewhat, there was a lot of discussion about the new world that we lived in after the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of communism. In the 1990s, there were millions of theories about how the world was going to operate now. Now, most of those theories turned out to be foolish, but it wasn't <laughs> for lack of having a, a national discussion about things. Well, I think if people read your your book, uh, your 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 books, I, I was introduced to your work, The World uh, America Made. I think just if, if we just read your books, we can be helpful. Uh, a couple of final questions, Bob. I know you've got to run. Um, why, why the title? Um, the Ghost at the Feast. Explain the title of the book. Yeah, well, I ran across this uh, this uh, quotation. Uh, one of the British diplomats who was present at the Paris Peace Talks in 1919 was actually a fairly famous British diplomat named Harold Nicholson. Yes. And, and, and in his memoirs uh, about Paris, uh, he writes that the fear that the American people would not uh, agree uh, and carry out whatever Wilson committed them to at uh, Paris was the ghost at all our feasts. That, that's what he wrote, that this fear that the Americans would not in fact play the role that the Versailles Agreement uh, required them to play uh, was something that haunted him and the other negotiators and of course turned out to be true. The haunting, of course, I don't know, when it comes to feasts, probably borrowed from Macbeth and Shakespeare, yeah. but that's another story, another book. <laughs> Finally, uh, the book, your books are always controversial, got some great reviews, and you also got some rather nasty ones with a classic in the New York Times that claim that it's a case that your book, and I think it's a very unfair review, uh, is a case for U.S. empire. It seems to me that some people just can't deal, especially perhaps reviewers in the New York Times, uh, they can't deal with the realities of international politics, can they, Bob? Well, I, you know, that would be my view. Obviously, the, the reviewer uh, has a different view of American foreign policy than I do, um, and, and that's fine, and that, I suppose, that's part of the debate. But what, what amused me about his review is that in, my, in the book, I suggested if Americans who had a few thousand troops sitting in the Rhineland uh, after the war as part of the peace uh, agreement, if it had only kept those several few thousand troops, just a few uh, in Europe, it might have played a much bigger role in, in keeping the peace and in preventing uh, the rise of the Nazis in Germany uh, and other things. And, and he regarded that as an act of imperialism. So if you believe that the United States keeping a few thousand troops on a continent where, where armies were in the millions uh, that if that is an act of imperialism, then that's that's not a definition of imperialism that, that I would use. But there is this general. The, the, he what he reflects is a is a strain of American thinking which is very powerful. Which is Americans have a real problem. Many Americans have a real problem with the exercise of power. This and, is not who this is not who we are. America's struggle between vengeance and virtue that was summarized by Shaw and what the reviewer suggests is that you were setting yourself up for volume three, where you're going to justify American invasions of Vietnam and Grenada and, um, and Iraq. Is that true, Bob? 
you know, I don't think of what I'm doing as justifying anything. I, I you know, it's hard to believe. You know, it, it's 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 difficult because you know I have views about current foreign policy issues, but then then there's the act of writing history, and in my view anyway, the act of writing history is to write it in such a way that it reflects what people at the time could see, what they thought was possible, not the judgment that we make on them in retrospect, because you're, we're pretty condescending about the past. Uh, but, but they had to, we live history forward uh, and we critique history backward. Um, but I wanted to write a history that goes forward. So the simple fact is I'm not trying to justify anything and I don't know what I'm going to wind up saying about Vietnam and Iraq. I mean, I will admit uh, somewhat embarrassedly, this book took me about 12 to 15 years to write, depending on how you <laughs> count. And the reason is, is because I, I really try to learn from the ground up and not come in with too many preconceived notions.